Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, June 10th, 2022. My daughter's high school graduation later today. My oldest child's my first high school graduation. So I will be in a, I'm in a very, very strange place emotionally. And maybe that will affect what goes on today. But deepest congratulations to Shana and her and her classmates with me as did I introduce myself? I don't even know if I introduced myself. I'm John the proud Papa. I'm John Bodhorts, <laughs> the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate. And congratulations. Thank you. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Also, congratulations. Thank you. And joining us today, Washington Commentary columnist and author of the magisterial history of the right, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John, and congrats to the whole Pothorts family. Thank you so much. Now, uh, the hearing, the primetime hearing last night into the events of January 6th will take up the balance of the show today. And I want to try to pull various strands out if we can, because we have the issue of how did the hearing go as a matter of itself like was it a good hearing did it reveal things was it conducted properly was it important and then we can then talk also about its political the political aspect and the way the media covered it um the first impulse on the part of those who wish to uh, downplay uh what happened last night seems to be to say uh, as has become a classic Washington trope, that there was nothing new. This is a classic Clinton thing. Anytime there was some revelation during the Clinton administration about how somebody in Clinton world did some X, Y, or Z in relation to Whitewater, the Clinton administration's response from Mac McClarty, the chief first chief of staff, to George Stephanopoulos, the press secretary, on down was to say, well, there's nothing new here even though it's like there's a new indictment, there's a new suicide, there's a new something. It was, nothing was ever new. And it's an interesting, because it, 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 the purpose is to, to leak the air out of the balloon, whatever the balloon is, to say, oh, come on, there's nothing. <laughs> come on, please. Like, like we haven't heard this before. So uh, Matt, let me start with you. Do, do you think that response is adequate to what happened last night? No, um, I think uh, watching uh, the hearing, you've, I found at least two new things. Uh, the first was that um, Trump, uh, when hearing the chance of hang Mike Pence, was uh, heard to have said, they got a point. <laughs> and it just uh, mind-bogglingly um, distasteful comment. Uh, of course, fitting uh with what we know of the president's behavior. Um, and then the second thing uh, that was new was uh, Congressman Cheney's uh, allegation um, that uh, several GOP congressmen actually uh, asked Trump uh, or Trump officials um, uh, to, uh, to pardon, to issue pardons uh, of them. Um, related to January 6th. So those are two p- new pieces of information to, to me, at least, um, even though I think the overall impact of the hearing was simply to remind the country 
uh, of that day, what it was like. And um, uh, the, the video presentation in particular, um, I think, uh, forced whoever was viewing, and that's a separate question, um, to relive uh, just this um, disgusting attack on, um, on the people's house. I think there was a second or a third revelation mm -hmm. in the course of that video. And this is central to the case that, that the January 6th commission or the, the committee is, is, is supposed to be making, which is what are the origins of the attack and who was responsible for the attack in the months leading up to the attack. And that revelation was that the Proud Boys uh, breached the perimeter of the Capitol before Trump finished speaking. That as Trump was speaking, an hour earlier, they had done some kind of a walk around the area. And then at one, I think it was 1.53 p.m., but I may have my, my times wrong, they actually broke through the first of the fences. Um, and according to the testimony, they were using terms for the, the Proud Boys' own organization as they breached the perimeter, that there was stack one and stack two, and that the first person to actually break through into the Capitol building itself proper by smashing this window uh, up the staircase onto the second story uh, was a Proud Boy, thus suggesting a degree of pre-planning that the, what happened here was not the spontaneous, let's go down to the Capitol and knock a few heads, which was, th this is central to the purpose of the commission, because if they can say the Proud Boys had a plan and that the Proud Boys executed the plan and that the plan was put into place as the president was speaking and that what happened was not the result of, you know, what Emil Durkheim would have called collective effervescence, but was crazy and demented and ridiculous though it might have been was thought through and even rehearsed in some fashion. Uh, then that goes to the question of who else were the proud boys talking to? Were they talking? And according to Benny Johnson, you're going to hear coordination between administration officials and uh, proud boys members. We hadn't hear that last night, but they say we're going to hear it soon. Uh, that's old news too, right? A week old because it appeared in the indictment. It was cited in the indictment. Uh, or rather the DOJ charges that were uh, sufficiently carried through convictions uh, of conspiracy involving the, uh, the Proud Boys who had created quick reaction forces, who had detailed plans of the Capitol and several buildings and plans to occupy those buildings in anticipation of capturing, I suppose, the city. Uh, forces probably weren't sufficient for that, but the plan did exist. Um, Matt cited, I took copious notes, Matt cited um, Secretary Cheney, or Secretary, um, uh, Congresswoman Cheney, Quoting Donald Trump directly, she's not paraphrasing. She's using direct quotes, saying things like, you will hear testimony that, quote, the president did not want to put anything out calling off the riot or asking his supporters to leave. Quote, maybe our supporters have the right idea. Mike Pence, quote, deserves it, citing the chance of hang Mike Pence. It was my biggest takeaway, the biggest revelation in my view is this one thing that has been rumored but never confirmed and still isn't probably sufficiently confirmed for the record, but is nevertheless now substantiated to a degree that it had never been previously, which is that Donald Trump simply abdicated the role of president 
in the three some hours when the Capitol was under attack. He made no contact with or effort to contact the Pentagon, call out the National Guard, contact law enforcement. He simply abdicated the role of commander in chief. And it was subsequently assumed by Mike Pence. No constitutional mechanism uh, devolved power to the vice president. He simply took it. Uh, that's a breakdown of constitutional law and procedure in a way that I don't think we've seen in this country's history. Um, really, honestly, unprecedented to a degree that should absolutely shock the conscience of anyone in this audience who cares for the stability of this republic. I mean, did he cease to be president or did he choose as president to do nothing? No, he, he was the president of the United States, remained the president of the United States. No constitutional power devolved to Mike Pence at any point. He just stopped doing the job to a degree that threatened the stability of the government because he liked what was happening. Right. Now, again, I think that that's an important that's an important element. The committee was formed, as I said, to get to the root of how January 6th happened. And circumstantially, it made a very strong case last night that what animated the people who were there using pieces of video footage of people who were being interviewed while the breach and the, the insurrection was taking place. What animated them was the, were the specific calls from Trump to come to Washington to do something wild. Like there were six or seven different people who said, he said we should come. He's done so much for us. It was time for us to do this for him. Now, that does not mean that he is legally responsible for their actions. It does not mean that he is even morally responsible for their actions because his calls for their participation were by definition vague. And what he was saying would happen on January 6th was by definition vague. Uh, I don't think that there can be any question that morally he is culpable. I mean, which, which again is nothing new. I mean, if you were somebody who believed that that what we saw there was, you know, untoward and that it wouldn't have happened had he not gone on this two month bender uh, about the loss of the election and the need to overturn the results of the election. Obviously, it never would have happened. And then the worst that could have happened happened. Um, and again, uh, you know, we saw we've seen a lot of footage we've, there. The impeachment hearings featured a lot of footage. Uh, the footage that was shown last night by this, I guess, British documentary filmmaker who testified uh, was different because um, he was in the crowd with the Proud Boys. So he was he, he was making a documentary that involved the Proud Boys. He was in there with them, following them as they moved in. And what you saw was this bizarre, they walk in and they start chanting, chanting Nancy Pelosi's name. Chanting, 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 Nancy, Nancy. They're threatening the Capitol policemen who are trying to hold the line. They're screaming at them, threatening them and calling them names and, and shouting, whose house is this? The people's house. And it looked coordinated. I mean, it looked like it looked a teeny bit rehearsed. Again, not spontaneous, not kind of like just emerging from the madness of the afternoon. And 
I don't know that they can ever prove the connection between, you know, prove some kind of non-gossamer or non-implicit connection between Trump and what happened here, which they attempted to establish with the, what did, what did he say during the debate? Stand by, stand down and stand by. Yeah. That that was the beginning that when he said, stand down and stand by, this was actually what activated the proud boys rather than settled them down to say, I'm going to be calling on you later for your help. Other members testified that that moment, whether we, you know, whether he intended it or not, and he probably didn't intend it as such. Nevertheless, they testified that this was the moment where their membership exploded by threefold, that their fundraising ballooned because they could sell merchandise around it, <clears throat> and that it it created a sense of mission and purpose uh, to a degree that is probably in unintentional on the part of, of Donald Trump, but nevertheless had this material effect. So, Abe, um, you are probably the most. I would I would imagine you're implicitly the most skeptical of the three of of, of the four of us about what happened last night. Um, uh, what was your overall impression? Um, I think you're right. Uh, <laughs> I <clears throat> uh, I on the point about uh, the the Republicans. Uh, seeking pardons for their participation that that did obviously strike me as, as thoroughly new. But the, on the point about um, Trump's response to to calls to hang Pence, that was out there. That was that was floating out there before this. Um, by the way, it's all revolting. It's all disgusting. I'm not downplaying the content. I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm just by way of sort of figuring out what was new. Um, I mean, I follow I, this as a rather, rather granular level, <clears throat> and I don't recall ever hearing direct quotes associated with the idea that Donald Trump was amenable to the idea of ex summarily executing the vice president, nor do I remember hearing, it was as we there. heard last night, direct testimony from General Milley uh, indicating that the White House was doing all in its power to downplay the notion that Mike Pence had assumed the role of the presidency because that would look bad. That was right. what, no, uh, on that, on the second part, I agree with you. On on the first, it was definitely out there. It was in some account. It might have been in a, a book ep excerpt. Uh, I, I don't recall, but it but it was there. But look, I'm not. This is not this. I I think there's a very good shot that that all of this um, could successfully reanimate the country's disgust about what happened on 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 January sixth. I'm not, I don't I don't think that's negligible. But in terms of learning things, I I just thought it was a little. Um, less stellar. Well, let's talk about what happened because two people spoke last night aside from the two witnesses, right? It, there were Benny Thompson, <clears throat> the chairman of the committee and Liz Cheney, the ranking member of the committee. Um, and their demeanors were calm, uh, understated, uh, unemotional, relatively unemotional. Uh, very much trying to cue to the facts. Only at very limited moments were there sort of like rhetorical flourishes, like right at the very beginning when Benny, uh, when 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 Benny Thompson said something about the Klan and a couple of uh, and and Liz Cheney talking about the dishonor of her colleagues. But you know, when this as this proceeds, the other members of the committee are going to start talking. And I presume that the minute that the other members of the committee start talking, the whole the whole procedure is just going to go up in flames as a 
public fact-finding mission. Go ahead. Yeah, that was my um, sense of it uh, too, John, that this basically was the January 6th committee's one opportunity to reent the country uh, toward what happened uh, a year and a half ago and um, seize to the degree possible in this fractured republic uh, the imagination uh, of the public. And in a way, the, the, the formation of the committee, um, I think, slightly hampered its effectiveness, which is to say, uh, I thought Congresswoman Cheney was the most effective person uh, by far yesterday. Uh, I think she gave a, a remarkable uh, opening statement, <clears throat> but it came, you know, I think a half hour in, right? And then the most visceral moment of the presentation is, of course, the footage from the day. And, you know, you and I, uh, uh, I know, John, we're both watching it happen unfold live that day. And to sit through it again, just bring brought back the same, like, uh, pit in my stomach. Um, but that happened pretty late, too. <laughs> and so uh, all in the run up to the hearing, there was all this attention being paid and publicity being paid, but, you know, the spectacular Hollywood production, you know, the Zigfield Follies, they got the, they got the uh, ABC News executive coming in. And um, in reality, though, I'm not so sure that they formatted it in the way to capture the public imagination. Now, that, that, could, that could just be, look, it's a Democratic House. Um, Pelosi refused McCarthy's nominations for the committee leading to this kind of bizarre setup where there are only two Republicans on the committee. Um, it, Chairman Thompson has to speak first, but um, I think there may have been something of a, a missed opportunity there. Well, again, and then, you know, the committee has, I don't know how many members and the other members are going to grandstand. And the minute that they start grandstanding, uh, the tone, the more in sorrow than an anger tone and the effort to say, we're not going to, we're, we're going to try to just lay out a timeline that supports the argument that there was a seven point, what was it that Cheney said? There was a seven phase plan to keep Donald Trump into the presidency. That's, by the way, new also, that very specific number that they're going to enumerate something that starts with point one and then point seven is the this capital. <laughs> On the morning of January 6th, President Donald Trump's intention was to remain president of the United States. Secretary, or Secretary, again, Representative Cheney said that the president, quote, oversaw and coordinated a, quote, seven-point plan to overturn the election. So that's the major allegation here, is that Trump himself oversaw a plan so specific that it can be broken down into seven constituent points. That is a big ask of this committee. In other words, that saying that if, if there was a seven-point plan, presumably that plan, the seven points have to be made up by the people who made the plan. Like you can't say after the fact, oh, well, you know, in the end, if you look at it, there were seven phases, you know, of the plan. A plan if a plan is a plan, it's it's drawn up not by the critics of the plan, but by the by the people who put the plan into place. If they That's, can somehow substantiate his place at each stage of the game, uh, 
with an understanding that after this phase of the plan is over, the next phase begins and he's there too. And then phase three and phase four and phase five and phase six, then the- uh, This is my power. criticism, I think, of uh, my only criticism of Cheney's uh, presentation is um, that that should have been followed on with with bullet points uh, in order to substantiate what the what the phases of those plan were, because they're doing this in stages and that will be explored, I suppose, summarily. Um, but what they focused on in this hearing was perhaps uh, it, to people who were focused on this, which are people who are already in politics. You, you knew did you did know quite a lot about this because it established malice of forethought. It established the idea that everybody in this administration was operating under assumptions they knew to be false, and that the president knew to be false. That was their primary objective in in that night, in this particular phase of this hearing, to understand that the predicate on which all of these events were based was a lie and it was a known lie and they were acting and operating maliciously. Um, that's important from a in a procedural sense, um, but in the dramaturgy sense, knowing the audience and the audience is very steeped in the details of this thing, it was probably, it landed hollow and they should have focused on perhaps the newer revelations and that's one of them. And they didn't outline that, but we know the, the, the rough outlines of it, coordination perhaps with elements on the ground, certainly uh, coordination with administration officials and members of Congress at the state level, at the electorate level, the fl floating these fields, uh, the field of fake electors, um, uh, changing electoral votes, falsely sending uh, new slates of electors, all this stuff. So this is all parts of the plan, but they were spread out over the course of this half hour presentation that Cheney gave. And she should have probably just enumerated them point, point, point. I just add that um, I do think there's a danger in over-promising and under-delivering. Um, Donald Trump has never struck me as a man with a plan. Um, he, in, if you read going back to 1987 and the art of the deal, the beginning of the book is all about how his life is completely unstructured and he does whatever he wants. And the second he has a wish, he starts thinking about trying to fulfill it and then he'll get distracted and, and move on to something else. Um, this was, of course, John Kelly, his uh, second chief of staff's uh, unending frustration that when Kelly, the Marine general, shows up at the White House, the doors to the Oval Office are always open. People are coming in and out. Um, Trump doesn't have a plan. He has he has instincts and he has desires and uh, he's constantly pushing to achieve them. So laying it out like that, that there is a seven step plan. And as you say, John, like, well, the Trump was moving on to phase two now. That just struck me as kind of not how Donald Trump functions as a human being. What Donald Trump, uh, 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 well, first I'll get to the other part about um, overpromising and underdelivering. It's the same thing with the, the potential coordination between the far right militias, okay, Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, and White House officials, which Noah mentions that Chairman Thompson is alluding to that they'll be able to substantiate, but you know they haven't yet, and uh, it's that's not in the indictments either. Um, and so, if you if you build it up like oh they were working in concert, uh, people might become uh, chagrined or skeptical once you can't actually prove that. And yeah. of course, that's how Trump works too. Everything is insinuation. Everything is um, kind of walked up right to the line. So to ensure deniability in the end, right? You know, if you watched his speech, 
which again, we, we saw that the, some of the militias were already walking toward the Capitol even before he was speaking. If you watch his speech, when I was watching it live, what struck me was the point where you have to work from strength or you're going to be crushed. Um, we have to fight for our country. And now, of course, what happens is that Trump's defenders point to that one throwaway line where he's like, and now we're going to march peacefully. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so he knew like it's like, OK, uh, oh, no, I was saying we march peacefully, even though he's spending this whole time getting the crowd riled up and saying, you know, we this is it. This is the moment of decision um, that that I think is a potential uh, uh, danger. Uh, the, the, my, my other last point uh, for the moment is wh- when I watched this stuff and relive January 6th, the, what, what strikes me is Trump is psychologically incapable of admitting loss. There's something he cannot, he cannot admit loss. And for four years, we basically were able to avoid the worst consequences of that inability. Right. We saw it at the very outset where he could not admit that he lost the popular vote. Right. At the, at the beginning of his presidency, it was all about, oh, we're going to set up. Remember the commission, the commission to find the voters. You know, um, uh, we were kind of able to skate by that, avoid that. Um, they, they broke up the commission after tw- 2020. We could not avoid it. Uh, and from the very night when he said, I won by a lot from that moment things were set in motion. Was it a plan? Was it rationally thought out at every step? That I'm a little bit skeptical, but it was Trump's inability to admit loss, which resulted in the riot on January 6th. Uh, That's why I think they haven't actually established that Trump knew his claims to be a lie. Um, I think it's one thing to, to establish that a billion people came to him and said, there's nothing here, this is nonsense. Um, But we don't know internally how he actually receives that information. He hasn't, he has, he is not on record as saying- That's extraordinarily charitable, Abe, to a degree that wouldn't hold up in court. It's not not charity, I'm saying he's demented. Well, but dementia is no no excuse. He did not know his claims I'm not excusing it. He did not know his claims to be true. At no point did he have any evidence to substantiate his his belief, if it was his belief. And he had a lot of people around him saying it was not true directly up to and including apparently his own daughter who has who testified that she had no reason to believe that Bill Barr was saying anything factually inaccurate. He can't know his claims to be true because they're not true. He but I, I, he, think, I still think he believed them to be true. Also, Noah, Noah, just to say you said that those claims can't hold up in court. Now, there's no court here. I mean, maybe there would be if the commission found sufficient evidence of a conspiracy that the justice department would actually charge no these are not criminal proceedings but we understand the colloquial understanding of a a level of understanding no they have said that if they can they are going to refer possible criminal proceedings to the justice department presumably that is the end goal of this committee that that that's that's what they, they've said proving a conspiracy requires conscious involvement in the conspiracy. One of the reasons that there are all these cases of entrapment in these conspiracy charges on terrorism and various other things is that you have the informants or the FBI in there and they're, what they need to do 
is to have on record people saying, yes, I would like to conspire to overthrow the government of the United States of America. No, we have a record of him saying that you need to find certain votes, make up the votes, change the votes. These are direct quotes suggesting rather strongly that the president doesn't care how you get to his desired outcome. He wants a desired outcome. I don't disagree with you, but they don't go to his state of mind. Well, that absolutely goes to his state of mind. No, 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 no. If his state, let let me just explain what I mean by that. If his state of mind is that all elections are garbage and that all electoral counts are controlled by unseen forces and that the entire American political system is a corrupt sham, then if he goes and says, find me the votes to Brad Raffensperger, the the predicate in his head is, sure, he can find the votes. This is what this is what people like this do. Okay, but again, so this isn't a court of law, right? So there's no such thing as an insanity defense. Doesn't matter what he believed or how deluded he was, his actions betray what he wanted to achieve, which was to subvert the process of the transition of power. I totally agree with you, but I'm saying that in the, the that the the case again, I don't even know we're going in kind of weird directions because this is obviously about the court of public opinion and establishing a fact pattern for history to judge Trump. But they are making a case that there was a seven-point plan inaugurated at some point that culminated in the storming of the Capitol. And that the seven-point plan, if it was a seven, if it were a seven-point plan and not simply just kind of like a series of improvisations that kind of um, laid one on top of the other over the course of from October until January, that if they can't prove that Trump was in on it, then they've made a mistake. Well, I would say, though, there is a grand jury in Georgia. Right. Looking into Raffin, the Raffensperger affair. And to, to kind of to Noah's point, that I think is the most ripe for potential criminal prosecution. Because right. there you, you have it on record. It's on the tape. And he's, find me, Brad, show me the, find me the votes. And, you know, his defense might be what John is saying, but it's still, um, it's still pretty damaging. Setting that in, again, uh, this larger kind of thing. I don't, I don't think that when Trump woke up after, you know, getting 90 minutes of sleep on election night, 2020, he said, all right, get me Sidney Powell in here. Get me Cleta Mitchell in here. Uh, you know, we're going to go, go uh, send out, um, feelers to Bannon so he can get uh, and stone so they can get the militias. And um, that's not how he operates. Now, it's possible the January 6th committee will have found evidence that proves that. But Trump is just much, it's it's completely improvisational. It's, you know, it's, um well, I don't want to talk to somebody who's giving me contrary advice. So the crazy lady who says that Hugo Chavez plotted Joe Biden's election before he died. Oh, she's she's great. She's the convenient weapon. I have at hand. And that's what I'm going to. It wasn't November. It was in December 18th, 2020, according to um, Ms. Cheney and and 
earlier reporting that you had meetings with people like General Powell and, and Sid, uh, General Flynn, Sidney Powell and, and Giuliani, who were in the White House talking about, quote, having the military seize voting right. machines and potentially re rerun elections. The president did take a meeting with these individuals. We do not know what was discussed in that. Meeting. Well, we know. Yeah. And we knew that at the time, though, as well. I, I recall, I think it was Maggie Haberman or somebody uh, pointing out Flynn. I, I, well, no, it was Mike Lindell the my pillow guy who was at some of these met, uh, meetings who was literally photographed <laughs> and the uh, East Portico or whatever with the notes that said, seize military, seize, <laughs> seize ballot boxes, uh, completely frightening, but also it, and it, it didn't happen. That's the other kind of, I mean, thank God it didn't happen, but it didn't happen. So that's the other kind of um, shield Trump will be able to use if, if the justice department, does indict on the basis of the congressional referral. I just hey. want to say to Matt's point um, about Trump not being capable of uh, planning these things, of organizing them, of, of, of seeing through a step-by-step -step plan. This is kind of exactly what happened in regards to over-promising and under-delivering on the uh, Trump-Kremlin collusion, right? It's it's always why it felt a little the claims about about what what the what the campaign was up to always felt a little overbaked because it was like they're they're just they're just Trump set off the off the off the cuff uh, hey, and Russia if you're listening you know can you can you find Hillary's extra emails and this then you, you the critics had to sort of spin this into a, 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 a an organized plan. Well, I, I have to I have to push back on you on this because the simple fact of the matter is that um, there was no there there when it came to the collusion, uh, but there was a riot on January sixth, and the riot on January sixth happened because of things that Trump did. Now that doesn't mean that because they happened that Trump is legally culpable or that this came as a result of a systematic conspiracy. Um, but it does mean that the dog barked. In other words, the dog didn't bark with the electors. The dog didn't bark with the Brad Raffensperger being pressured to change the count. The dog barked because a thousand psychotics summoned to, to you know, like, like the bad Sylvester Stallone movie Cobra, where a conspiracy of schizophrenics decides they want to run run the world. Trump summons the worst elements of his coalition in a larger crowd of deluded people who will believe anything that comes out of his mouth. And then a subset of them went with violent intent and pepper spray and bear spray and clubs and things with the intent, had they gotten their hands on Mike Pence or had they gotten their hands on Nancy Pelosi of killing them, they would have killed them if they had the chance. It wouldn't have been like, oh my God, it's Mike Pence. Let me get an autograph with him. They, those people, you saw it in their eyes in that video. If, if somehow they had turned a corner and there was Mike Pence, they would have beaten him to death with the clubs that they were carrying. And that, that, was, that would be mob action. What they intended to do was occupy buildings, thwart the counting of electors, and undermine the transition of power. But see that subversion. 
Okay. And but treason. That, but that, I don't think that's what the Proud Boys were up to. The Proud Boys. Well, this is in the indictment of this conspiracy. Yeah, okay. But let, let, let me just. And, and they would have been killed too. I mean, if they, right. yeah, the Secret of Service course. would not. Yeah. Right. But yeah. Pelosi and some of the other congressmen, I mean, the, the members who were trapped in the House, yeah. right? I mean, it came very close to, to being one-on-one uh, yeah. with the mob. Yeah. But so my, my point is like, Trump is morally culpable and it's really bad. And he was impeached and had the circumstances not been that the hearing of him for his removal took place after he was already gone from the presidency, the convenient out for those Republican senators was he's gone anyway. So let's just let this lie. We don't know what would have happened. I don't care what Republican public opinion would have been. If it had been a month, if it had happened, I know it wouldn't have happened because the circumstances were very specific two weeks before the inaugural, but, or if they could have somehow gotten it done or something like that. I don't know, faced with the fact pattern that they were faced with, that they could have voted not to, not to convict. Um, there was no, there was sort of no arguing the point. Um, and so that, that's where it's different because the whole point is like, if you take us as, a, as an example, so of course we are, we are on the right. Uh, we never liked Trump. Uh, we admired him on the Abraham Accords, blah, blah. We, you know, we, we oppose the first impeachment. I mean, you know, to the extent that we don't have a corporate line, but the three of us oppose the first impeachment. One exception. Uh, who? You. I'm sorry. Okay. Yes. Three of the four. Okay. So, so three out of four opposed the first impeachment and supported the second. So the whole point here is that I think fact patterns can be established that are different in different cases and that Trump was culpable uh, and it deserves blame for the riot and what happened. But the committee is now going to make the committee has set itself a high bar by its own by its own standards last night by saying they are going to lay out a very specific conspiracy in seven phases. And uh, because of what Matt says about what we know about Trump and because of what Abe says about what we know about Trump, I don't know that they're going to clear that bar except with people who have already, you know, who've already come with their minds made up. That what we have here is it's way bad enough what he did. It's more than bad enough what he did. But, you know, he's not Phil Hartman in the Saturday Night Live sketch with Iran Contra going around being bumbling with Jimmy Stewart and then going in the other room and going, all right, where, who, who's sending the planes to the Contras? And who's it, you know, like that, that whole thing. That strikes trouble. me as exceedingly simple. Okay. Forget all of it. If Donald Trump, in the three some odd hours where the Capitol was under siege and the legislature was threatened and the constitutional process was was menaced to the point that it was the the design was to over overturn the the devolution of power from one administration to the next and constitutional order broke down and the president abdicated his role and the vice president seized the authority that is dedicated invested in entirely in the man of the president the chief executive constitutional order failed and every single member of congress if they knew this and it's true and they voted to acquit, abdicated their responsibility to defend the Constitution from enemies foreign and domestic. Bottom line, one sentence, beginning, middle, and end of the story. Okay, but that's about Congress. So that's the other thing we should point out, which is that the, it, it is really the case 
that if seven Republican congressmen or something like that went to Trump asking for pardons because they knew that there is evidence that they were colluding in some, or that their their offices were up to no good in helping do something or other with these guys. That is going to be really bad. And Kevin McCarthy is going to find himself in an incredibly bad position. And even though that what they'll say is, ah, there's nothing there, and this is just liberals being liberals, and it's so terrible. Um, I don't know. I mean, that that is a that talk about something that's never happened before. The one member who was named, there Scott were apparently Perry. others, Scott Perry, who's a congressman from Pennsylvania, also chairs the Freedom Caucus. Anyway, so if we were to give if we were to be McLaughlin, the McLaughlin group and say, uh, if last night, ju- judging from like, you know, one, one to a hundred, sort of one meaning uh, this hearing had was a was a disaster for Democrats to a hundred. Uh, Trump will be in, you know, will be on Devil's Island for the rest of his life. Maybe it's one to ten is better because there's too many. Uh, like, where where was it on your on your scale? It's not so easy, is it? I don't know. Like, in what sense? Salience, relevance. Well, McLaughlin never had. McLaughlin never had to. McLaughlin didn't make sense either. Yeah, Uh, you just shout out a number of the McLaughlin group. Eight. (laughs) (laughs) It's an eight. Um, Well, you know, maybe maybe we should then talk a little bit about the the politics of it because we actually haven't talked about that yet. So, is there any reason to think that uh, the hearing was sufficiently impressive that the politics? of it help the democrats and hurt the republicans in it's, some i mean in in the near term i i don't think there's any reason to believe it helps the democrats i think it will be uh another arrow in their quiver if trump is the republican nominee in 2024 i mean people i, I have noticed that everyone's like well you know the committee hearings aren't going to change any any minds well the truth is most of the public has made up its mind about donald trump they don't like him <laughs> they don't want him near the presidency. And uh, and being reminded of this stuff is only going to make those feelings uh, more intense. Um, the problem is the Republican Party, which uh, has had the opposite reaction, uh, which, you know, on the day of January 6th, most Republicans, uh, other than the, the, the MAGA core, were horrified. Uh, and um, we, of course, that's the famous... Uh, uh, leaked audio uh, that's in the uh, Jonathan Martin and Alexander book, uh, Burns book, This Shall Not Pass, with Kevin McCarthy himself is saying, well, we're trying to figure out a way that he can uh, resign. Um, but in the year and a half since, it is remarkable. Uh, the GOP has closed ranks. Um, the uh, Trump uh, defenders are, on, uh, uh, are working harder than ever. And to read some of the quotes from... Um, uh, conservative spokespeople last night during the hearing was was uh, upsetting to me. Um, it was just like la di da di da. Don't believe, <laughs> don't listen to anything. You know, uh, one one uh, prominent uh, think tank leader tweeted out, "Tonight is a night to spend time with your families." Well, isn't every night a time to spend with your? Why are you saying tonight in particular? Right? I mean, are you so are you so so fragile that you can't just watch this, recognize that Donald Trump's psychological problems manifested themselves in a way that 
shook the constitutional order to its foundations. And, and that means that, you know what? He should not be the Republican nominee in 2024. The we don't have a lot of polling around January 6th anymore this year, but the last polls that we saw show market declines in the number of Republicans in particular who attribute a lot of responsibility for the Capitol riot to Donald Trump himself. But as of January 2022, that was still 41% of self-identified Republicans who attributed a lot or some responsibility to Donald Trump among all Americans. It's something to the tune of almost 70% that Donald Trump bears a lot of blame. Will you change the minds of the minority who do not? No because it's not a reasoned position. You can't reason them out of it. But they're a very slim minority of public opinion. So yes, public opinion is settled on January 6th, and it's settled in favor of the notion that Donald Trump bears blame for it. I mean, look, the problem is the famous binary. So we're, we're, we're talking about 2024. Fine, let's talk about 2024. Matt's talking about whether or not the Republicans should nominate Trump. Let's presume, all things being equal, the Republicans are going to nominate Trump. So Trump would have no chance, except that he's facing a Democrat potential re-election campaign by an 82-year-old man who is in cognitive decline and, uh, and is running, uh, unless there's a very significant uptick in 2023, is running with the worst record that any president will have had since the Carter presidency, and maybe since the I don't, Hoover presidency. Uh, and then there'll be Trump sitting there. And uh, you could have the phenomenon of the Democratic Party having to, you know, be attached to this unelectable second termer uh, facing an unelectable returning to office after his disgraceful <laughs> loss. Um, I mean, the, 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 the politics of America are devolving in this direction. We're hurtling toward that. Um, and so you could have a situation in which this hearing hardens the sense among a lot of people that it would be unbelievably dangerous to the constitutional future of the United States. And not just, you know, already Melbourne and, you know, David Rothkoff and every hysteric on Twitter, but some ordinary people that, you know, this, this would be a really, really dangerous moment for the country. And yet are going to turn around and vote Joe Biden in if he continues being the Joe Biden that he is today with the results that he's gotten and with the behavior that he is increasingly demonstrating, you know, I mean, we are just entering, we're going into a new thick, you know, we're going into a new world, a uh, political world under those circumstances. Um, and well, with you know, that, think, yeah, go ahead. Well, if, if, when, if 2024 comes around and a large chunk of the American people are still feeling the pain, some pain of, of Joe Biden's policies, um, the question is, you know, as I've said before here, we're, we're in this sort of phase of politics being about the, the real the real world and the impact on your own lives. Um, maybe that does take precedence over over the the idea that that Trump is uh, a threat 
to the, the good working order of the United States and the Republic. I mean, I really, it really could. I mean, his case would be the following, which is like, look at where America was in 2019 before the Chinese, you know, threw this virus at us. Things are going pretty good. You want to go back there or you want to be where you are now? Now, Democrats will say, well, 2020, and then, of course, your behavior in 2020. And it's not that that's not a, that's not a potent argument either. I'm just saying, like, we're basically going to have, we, we could be in a position where we have, like, a, you know, you know, a man, you know, a man with a drool cup versus a raging psychotic, you know, and these are our two choices. We could, of course, the scenario does assume that Joe Biden is running for re-election. Okay, but then, but then, let's say Joe Biden isn't running for well. This my 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 point, John, is that yeah, go ahead. The 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 hearing last night may have reinforced to many Democrats that they cannot have Joe Biden at the top of the ticket. Okay, but then of course, then of course, the question is, who do they get at the top of the ticket? I mean, that's that's the you know, if if it were clear, you know, if Kamala were in the wings, and as a as a as a plausible successor. And, you know, all you hear about, forget us, all you hear about is Democrats are like, oh, my God, that's terrifying that she, you know, she's the one. I don't think so. Like, that's every article that is published about Democratic opinion around Kamala Harris reinforces my sense of Kamala Harris. And that shouldn't be the case. Right. They should be they should be happier with her than I am. So I don't know. I'm uh, I'm a little. uh that's that's a fascinating set of circumstances, but it, yeah, I mean, th- this is also very speculative, and to the point that it's difficult to even suss out. I mean, would Democrats even consent to the idea that they can have this this horse race, this fractious fight over, you know, uh, the guy whose whose jobs everybody who's who owes their careers in the White House to this guy would just sac- abdicate and then let all that happen? I find it hard to believe. But also, this hearing reinforces that Republicans are going to have a primary too. And this hearing reinforces the idea that it will be a re-litigation of 2020. It'll be a re-litigation of Donald Trump's wounded ego and a refutation of all the events we know to have happened. And the idea will be that adherence to the line, fidelity to Donald Trump, requires you, demands of you, to state untruths, to internalize and believe untruths, and to be backward-looking. And there's an opportunity for any Republican who's willing to take him on to actually make the case against Joe Biden, which is not a case that Donald Trump will be inclined to make, not in the primary. Okay, I I give you a darker scenario or a more complicated scenario, which is that there isn't a primary battle in 2024. Trump declares his intention to run for president next month. Polls say we haven't talked about that, but that's the scuttle. Polls say that 65 percent of Republicans will vote for him in the primaries and nobody declares against him in the primary battles that we've seen in 2022 it's not as though there are people running against trumpians to reestablish the control of the republican party in the hands of more uh i don't know more conventional republicans it's all trumpians against conventional republicans there is no center of the party anymore in that sense and so somebody would have to run as a sacrificial lamb you know who's ready you know, ben sass i don't know somebody would run as a sacrificial lamb in and be there in case something happens right you'd be there sort of you'd be running 
Uh, but you'd be Trump's punching bag. But, you know, what if he has a heart attack? What if he, you know, what if something happens and he gets indicted in Georgia, you know, where he gets convicted of something, whatever. There is always that possibility. And in the Democratic frame, the question is whether that the Democratic Party can pull off a Trump. I mean, that would be the way to save the party from, I don't mean Trump himself, I mean an example, which is somebody who comes along in 2015 as a deus ex machina to, in some weird fashion to save them from Biden um, and to push Biden out the way Gene McCarthy pushed uh, Johnson out in, in, in 1968. I mean, I, I just don't know who that is and I don't know how that would function. And I can't imagine the structure of the Democratic Party making that possible since it's so institutionally controlled by these outside third party institutions that get, you know, that get delegate, you know, get seats and delegates and this and that and the other thing, I, you know, and proportional representation and racial representation and gender representation that to have that X factor come along, to have a sort of Ross Perot or Trump figure come along that would take the party away from Biden. Uh, it's hard to imagine. But of course, such thing, Trump was hard to imagine in, 20, in 2014. And that's where we are now. The other place we are now is I got to talk to you about the X chair because the X chair, if you're going to spend the next two years trying to follow what on earth is going on in politics, you're going to need a comfortable place to sit that supports your lower back with the patented dynamic variable lumbar, because let me tell you, you know, you're going to be very uncomfortable at many points during the next couple of years. Uh, and so you need the right chair to spend the hours that you spend more than you spend often in your cars or in your beds, getting the right level of support and comfort to get the most productivity out of your day. You can get a massage, you can heat up, you can cool down. And they got these new FS360 armrests that mean you can even adjust your armrests to the perfect position. That's why you'll love your X chair. Go to xchaircommentary.com. Now that's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com or call one 844 x chair for $100 off your order, extra has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase. Brazil is $30 a month, xchaircommentary.com. And now more than ever, now more than ever, as we have these fights and these battles, you've got to go get David Bonson's book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. David Bonson, spelled B-A-H-N-S-E-N, is a uh, financial advisor and manager of, of $3.5 billion dollars. Uh, at his firm, the Bonson Group, and he is a rare figure in this field in 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 being fully and completely versed in uh, in the history of economics, in theology, in political economy, and in political thought, uh, taking a day to day approach and explaining how uh, economic freedom, human flourishing, and belief in in uh, in, in the Almighty and in faith how they all come together to have made America the greatest experiment on earth and, and, and how these uh, truths that he uh, enumerates um, need to be understood and defended because they're constantly under attack. So that's, there's no free lunch, 250 economic truths by David Bonson, B-A-H-N-S-E-N. Go get it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble or wherever you get your fine books. Okay, very quickly before we go, the Washington Post has fired Felicia Sanmez. Uh, it's uh, pay, uh, the uh, the uh, writer for the paper who sued them for not letting her cover Brett Kavanaugh. 
because she uh, because uh, she claimed to be a victim of trauma, and therefore they said she couldn't really uh, she wasn't going to be able to be objective. And then she sued them, and the suit was thrown out of court. And now she's had a an eight day tantrum about um, a uh, an admittedly sexist tweet uh, retweet by by her colleague Dave Weigel, whom she calls her good friend, and then attempts to destroy ruin and throw into a volcano to be melted down into his constituent parts and then goes after another colleague for saying, don't do this. Uh, and then yesterday, Sally Busby, the editor of the Washington Post, like, like openly fired her, said you were you know, insubordinate, uncollegial, and were not, were, you, you do not have the best interests of the institution at heart. So Matt, why didn't she do this uh, three seconds after uh, Felicia Sanmez um, went after Dave Weigel and attacked the Washington Post for being such a terrible workplace? Why did it take her a week? I have no idea. I would say that um, the uh, institutions tend to react in such a defensive crouch when one of their um, employees makes uh, you know, such a fuss on social media or internally uh, that that was probably the uh, Sally Busby's instinct. And then she thought um, incorrectly that appeasement would work and it did not. And uh, things got more out of control. And she was finally to, uh, had to recognize reality, which is that uh, Sanmez just could not continue to work there. I would say a few things in addition need to happen. One is, I mean, you know, I think they can, Shouldn't they lift Weigel's suspension? I mean, it was clearly over the top uh, and he doesn't he didn't deserve it. It was a stupid retweet, uh, you know, without pay now uh, for how many days? Um, uh, I think that needs to be reversed as well. And also and this is for all employers. Um, they need to they need to close Slack. They need to tell the Slack, get it off your computer. No more chat. You cannot chat with your colleagues anymore. You cannot have instant message. You cannot have Google chat. All conversations need to be either in email or in the open face-to-face. -face. It was the introduction of, of Slack, I think, that is uh, one of the causes of uh, the uh, maddening uh, um, uh, of America businesses over the past few years. The fact that these chats are going on all the time and the new employees in particular, um, who tend to be the most woke, are spending all day uh, disparaging their bosses, disagreeing with decisions, and rat ratting on their colleagues on, on these online channels has done nothing but harm to the workplace. So if I could uh, assume Donald Trump's role as the dictator <laughs> of America, my first edict would be, no more slack. And until the Washington Post does that, I fear other incidents like this may occur. Abe, uh, do you see a larger uh, meaning in Felicia Sanmez's dismissal? I think it's a really encouraging first step. Uh, it, it's, it, it announces there's a limit. Okay, guess what? Turns out we have a limit. We, we you know, we, we, we're not gonna, we're not gonna just sort of indefinitely take this nonsense in the name of inclusivity and, 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 you know, uh, sort of, you know, non-victim blaming and all that. So I, 
it's not uh, it's not the beginning of um, of a, of a sort of full scale backlash, but it's a n- much needed, very late first step. Um, I think Noah, uh, as uh, as somebody who's been you know writing about wokeness now for years, uh, you know, sort of publishing your second book effectively about the you know about the effect of wokeness on American culture. Um, uh, this is where this is a moment at which wokeness met 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 the road. Like there, one one or the other. The question was: Could could the Washington Post function in good working order without this over time? Uh, if this kind of thing was going to be allowed to continue, that because because it took her it took a week because of the wokeness because Felicia Sanmez was somebody who was making a woke claim against a colleague and then saying that the institution itself was corrupted by its own white privilege or whatever. And this then gave her leeway to aggress against the people who were providing her with her paycheck. Yeah, that's why I'm less sanguine about the outcome of (laughs) how this will reverberate in the the culture is uh, in part because all the people in this institution are adherents to the same ideology that animated Felicia Sanna's to set fire to the building. Um, she displayed uh, excess zeal for the cause, but the cause is one to which they are all committed. Uh, and there will be a rear guard action in her defense within this institution, one that we're probably not going to see much of because I don't think it'll spill into the public in the way that Sanna's did. That was her offense to make it public. Um, but there will be a rearguard action uh, in defense of the principles to which she was an adherent, the idea that the, this institution, much like every other institution in America, is sexist, is racist, is fundamentally discriminatory towards people like her, anybody who has the demographic traits that are on this intersectional hierarchy of oppression. Uh, and that ideology is unchallenged within these institutions. She behaved, her comportment was unacceptable. Her beliefs were not. And with that, one last point on that. I mean, I I agree largely with Noah, but the if you take away the enforcement mechanisms of the of the ideology, um, that is why I say it's an important step. If you if you if you if you cut off the path through which people can say you must act this way, you must you must you must uh, not say this, you must say that. um, That's that's the first step. It is a first step, but let's see them do it to an African-American. When that happens, uh, I'll, you know, you can get back to me. Um, and with that, thank you, Noah. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Abe. Uh, have a great weekend, everybody. And for Abe, Noah, and, and, and Matt, I'm John Pavoritz. Keep the candle burning.